Dear God, I do thank you for just your presence, your love, the incredible gift of your grace that you meet us where we are, that you walk with us through the difficult times and seasons. Lord, we thank you for Patrick's story. We continue to pray for for him, that you would provide for him and walk beside him. And and Lord, I just, um, I do lift up uh, Bobby Joe and Gordon uh, Reed and their, their loss of their home. We ask for your provision and your help and comfort and encouragement at this difficult time. Lord, we do pray for the new year as we head into it, that we will be people who step back and pause and assess and see where we're at, and that we would uh, desire and to move forward in our lives and in our relationship with you, that we would be people who are salt and light in our culture and community, that we would be ambassadors for your kingdom. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So this morning, our main text is going to come. It's a short passage from the book of Ezekiel. And just to give you a little bit of background, um, Ezekiel wrote the prophet. He wrote about 2,500 years ago. It's a complex book. It's a dark book. He was a prophet of judgment in many ways to the people of Israel. It was a dark time in the history of the Jewish people. They had, uh, most of them had been dragged off into exile into Babylon. Uh, The uh, city of Jerusalem was uh, decimated. Uh, The temple was uh, destroyed at one point in, in that timeline. And one of the really chilling scenes in the book of Ezekiel is when the, the glory of God, which would, you know, had, had come down and, you know, rested in, in the temple um, that, you know, Solomon dedicated. The glory of God, there's this vision that Ezekiel has of it leaving, of him leaving the temple. And so if you were a Jew at this time, you were just heartbroken You were just living and walking in shell shock, in ruins. Your king, there's no king. Most of them are not in the homeland. The city's decimated. The temple's gone. And so there's just, this is an absolute dark time. This book is so, it's a lot of symbols, lots of prophecy. Some of the rabbis would tell you that you weren't mature enough to handle this book unless you were 30 years of age, and so they didn't recommend that you studied it, which of course I'm now guaranteed that, you know, at least a few teenagers will go home and read the book of Ezekiel, but uh, it's it's a tough book. He's called to do some unique uh, symbols. There's a time where he, he does this where he lays on his side, uh, one side for 390 days. It was a prophetic picture. And then he flips and lays uh, for another 40 days on another side, um, on his right side. He ate horrible, coarse, nasty food. And all of this, these were signs of war and famine and the scattering of the Jewish people. There's a lot of darkness in this particular book. And yet... The passage I want to lift out, it comes, it's a small piece of a larger oracle of restoration, an oracle, a message of hope given to God's people, first to the Jews, but I think we as followers of Christ who are engrafted in, we can grab onto these promises as well. In Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 25 through 27, it says this, 
This is God speaking through the prophet Ezekiel. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. And so... I don't know where you find yourself today. All of us have a sin problem. All of us struggle with sin. Maybe yours is intoxication or sexual immorality, or maybe you're running on the treadmill of accumulating stuff. Maybe you're standing in the ruins of a broken relationship. I don't know where you're standing this morning, but there is a God of hope and restoration who offers us this incredible opportunity to have relationship with him and to change our lives and to change ourselves. Real change, the first idea when I look at this brief passage is that real change starts with God's cleansing. We see it in Ezekiel 36, 25. I will sprinkle clean water on you, you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. Max Lucado once said, the Christian is a man whom something has happened, to whom something has happened. And that something is the forgiveness of sins, the cleansing. When I think about the apostles gathering for the Last Supper with Jesus before he's going to die on the cross, Jesus has worked with them for three, three and a half years. And here he overhears them arguing among themselves about who is the greatest among them. I mean, think how disappointing that has to be. And they gather at this Last Supper. He knows he's facing death. They don't fully understand it, even though he's told them and prophesied to them about this. And Jesus strips down to the garments of a servant. And he kneels in front of each of those apostles. And he washes their grimy, nasty feet. And think about who they are. Think about Simon the Zealot. A man who possibly, you know, would take the life, would assassinate soldiers in the dead of night before he met Jesus. Because he viewed himself as a freedom fighter. Think about Matthew, the tax collector, kind of the opposite end of the spectrum. He's a guy who would be afraid of Simon. He's a guy who was a turncoat against his own people, who worked for the hated Romans who were oppressing the Jewish people. He most likely was stealing from people and oppressing them and taking their money and raising their taxes just so he could get wealthy. And yet, Jesus washed his feet. Think of Judas, the betrayer. Think of Peter, the one who said, hey, when everybody else leaves you, I'll be faithful. And yet, he denied even knowing Jesus multiple times. And Jesus washed those nasty, dark, places. God knows every bit of what we've ever done. He knows all the darkness in us, the brokenness, the rebellion, and yet he offers us this incredible cleansing. Notice it says he'll cleanse you from all your impurities and all your idols. He helps us with these things that grab our attention that grab our devotion. An idol is anything that you put in the place of God in your life. It could be money. It could be a relationship. It could be, I mean, you fill in the blank. And God helps us with this. 
think it's interesting. The word here for idols is, is similar to a, a Hebrew expression meaning dung pellets. You know, I'm from Indiana, cow pies, you know. David talks about this cleansing that's offered to us in Psalm 51, 7. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. An Old Testament reader of this passage would think of the mosaic ritual cleansings that were part of their life. New Testament readers often think of um, the ordinance, the ritual of Christian baptism. I kind of think of, you know, peanuts, the character, um, you know, pig pen, and he's just covered in dirt, and if, if someone were to clean him and cleanse him. Jeremiah 31, verse 34, part B says, this is God speaking, for I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more, which is such a remarkable promise. The all-knowing God will remember our sins no more. Some of you are married, and, and you know, there's this, this thing where, you know, stuff comes back up, doesn't it, sometimes? Your spouse doesn't get hysterical, they get historical, and they remind you of something that you did. But God doesn't hold our past against us. He offers us through the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ, he offers us cleansing and forgiveness. I love how the New Testament writer, the Apostle Paul says it in Romans 8.1, he says, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Think about whatever the worst thing you've ever done and write across it, forgiven. Because of what Jesus did. Because they love us. He loves us so much. So that first idea is that real change, it uh, offers us, it begins with the cleansing of God. Second idea is that real change embraces a new life. I think it's interesting that sometimes when God calls a person, he changes their name. Abram becomes Abraham. Saul in the New Testament becomes Paul the Apostle. He takes our old heart and he gives us a new heart. You know, our old heart can't be trusted. Jeremiah 17 verse 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? This is why it's such a disaster in our non-Christian culture when, when the advice that's given so often on all kinds of issues is follow your heart. Well, your heart's deceitful. Can't trust it. Unless you have a new heart in Christ that's filled with the truth of God's word. I call it the Frank Sinatra heart. You know, his most famous song was I Did It My Way, which is a pretty song, but if you look at the lyrics, it's a terrible lifestyle. It's a life of rebellion, <clears throat> almost shaking your fist at God. We all need, in a sense, to be a funeral director and let some things in our lives die, and that old heart has to die, but that tomb becomes a place of transformation for us. I think of the story in the New Testament of the resurrection of Lazarus. Lazarus is a good friend of Jesus, and Jesus is off traveling. He gets word that his friend Lazarus is, is very, very sick, and it's like he intentionally waits and doesn't go. And when he does finally show up, Lazarus has been dead for several days. And his Lazarus sisters come to Jesus. And I wouldn't say they rebuke him, but they definitely complain to him. You know, if you'd been here, you could have saved him. And Jesus reminds them that he is the resurrection and the life. 
They go to the tomb. They roll away the stone. And they object. They're like, he's been in there for days. He's going to stink. It's going to be terrible. And Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus comes out of that grave. He does the miraculous. He does what only God can do. I love the fact that Lazarus' name literally means whom God helps. I don't think that's an accident. Whom God helps. And the rest of his life, Lazarus is this walking commercial promotion video for Jesus Christ. Just him walking into a room. People are like, that's the guy. That's the guy who Jesus gave new life. We need to understand that um, without Christ, we're dead in our transgressions. Ephesians 2.1, it says this, Paul writes, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. It's not like we just had a cold of compromise or something mild. We're dead spiritually. There's nothing we can do to save ourselves. We can't be good enough. But through the life offered, through Jesus Christ, through his death and resurrection, we can have new life. Dutch painter Vincent van Gogh identified so much with the story of Lazarus in his old age, in his final years, that he painted his own picture on the face of Lazarus as he comes out of the tomb. And I think since we all need to do that, we see that we are called by God from death to life. Jesus does this for us. He takes that old heart and gets rid of that heart of stone, but gives us a new heart. In Ezekiel 36, 26, he says, I will give you a new heart, put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Not a heart filled with guilt and sin and rebellion. That's a heart of stone, but a heart of flesh, a heart of compassion. A heart that's responsive. Remember, in, throughout the Old Testament, um, Uh, that the prophets would come to Israel and they'd say, you're a hard-hearted people in a hearts of stone and rebellion. But God calls us to a new heart, a soft heart, a beautiful heart that's receptive to him. This new heart is called regeneration by theologians and it's the new creation. We get to see that in our own lives. We get to see it in the lives of those around us. Went to a funeral recently of a young man early 40s, and he had uh, much of his life in drug addiction, but Christ had grabbed hold of him and made a new creation out of him, and he was an amazing person of kindness. He was a servant. He was a great father, and I listened to story after story from those who knew him who just talked about that. He was a new creation in Christ. He was changed and transformed. It's incredible what God can do for us when he takes us from a stony, hard heart to a heart of compassion and mercy and authenticity. It's not just he just takes us to neutrality. He gives us new life. In 2 Corinthians 3, 3 through 6, uh, Paul writes, You show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with the ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. 
Such confidence we have through Christ before God. Not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our confidence comes from God. He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant. Not the letter of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. And so God writes on our hearts His holiness. He gives us new desires. We look at life differently. We walk forward and embrace the life that God calls us to. He implants a new nature in us. Now, there's still a battle for holiness, but he gives us this new nature. He gives us a new spirit. In Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27, he talks about a new spirit in verse 26. In 27, he says, I will put my spirit in you. The New Testament theologians talk about this being the gift of the Holy Spirit the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. And we have this beautiful partnership with the Holy Spirit. I think a good picture of it is, you can put up the picture. I think this reminds me of, of kind of like us and the Holy Spirit. We're the crow on the back of the eagle. Like, oh yeah, I'm doing great. But the power is in the Holy Spirit. But it's this beautiful partnership Max Lucado says of the Holy Spirit that he is, he is a heaven-sent helper. I find it intriguing that Jesus, here he spends three and a half years with these men, uh, his apostles, and yet he says to them, it is good that I go away so that you can have the comforter, the advocate, the Holy Spirit to come with you. It's interesting to me that they, you know, they've spent all this time with Jesus. They've learned. They've walked beside him. They've lived with him. But Jesus tells them to wait until they receive the Holy Spirit before they take on this crazy mission of making disciples of all nations. Wait for the Holy Spirit. You'll need him. In Ezekiel 37, so the next chapter, there's this remarkable vision that Ezekiel has. He goes, it's in his vision, he goes into this valley and it's filled with dry bones. And so this is a picture of desolation, defeat, failure. It's like an army has been massacred and defeated and killed. And it's, I mean, it happened a long time ago. They're dry bones. There is no hope in this valley. And yet the Lord says to the prophet, prophesy. Breathe life and the bones come together and the muscles are rebuilt and, and in the vision, a mighty army arises. And for a Jewish reader, they see the restoration of Israel and we see that and acknowledge that, but we also see, we see God bringing death and bringing it to life. That hopeless situation in your life that relationship that looks like it can't be saved and God can breathe life into it. Ezekiel 37, 14, he says, I will put my spirit in you and you will live. I will settle you in your land. See, that's the original context there uh, for the Jewish reader. Then you will know that I am the Lord, that I, the Lord, have spoken and I have done it, declares the Lord. And so we have moments where we experience ruin in our life, failure, despair, defeat, there is always hope. There's always hope. And the third idea is that real change involves a growing call to holiness. We're not instantly perfected, not in our behavior. We'd like to think we are, we're not. And if you say you are, I may follow you around with a notebook. 
We'll meet after a week. Ezekiel 36, 27 says, and I will put my spirit in you and move to you to follow my decrees and to be careful to keep my laws. You see, there's, the spirit changes us. We begin to walk in holiness. We live differently. We don't look exactly like our culture in how we speak and act and think. Anne Lamott once said, I do not at all understand the mystery of grace, only that it meets us where we are but does not leave us where it found us. God loves you right where you are, but he loves you too much to leave you there. He wants you to flourish and to thrive. We get stuck because we think it's all our willpower instead of allowing the power of the Holy Spirit to flow through us. And it can take time and it can be a process. John Newton, the famous uh, writer who wrote the famous hymn, Amazing Grace, you probably know it, even if you don't have a Christian background. He wrote Amazing Grace. He, when he came to Christ, he was a captain of a slave ship. And the testimony I'd like to tell you, it would be nice and neat, would be that he became a captain of the, you know, he was a captain of the slave ship, he becomes a Christian, and he immediately decides to go and free the slaves on his ship. It's not what happened. Spent six more years working in the slave industry. And then he was convicted. Eventually he grew. Eventually God changed him. And he became a leader to end slavery. But it took time. Just as you have a child born into your family, you know, like we have our little uh, grandchildren. We have three of them with us. We've enjoyed here, and you know, we don't sit them down, age two, you know, little babies, and go. It's time for you to help with the mortgage. No, we don't do that. It takes time to grow. But real change involves a growing call. To holiness. How does a little kid learn to walk? You watch them, they take a step, they fall down, they get back up, take two steps, fall down, they get back up. This is how we grow. Craig Groeschel says this, I love it. He says, With every action, you are choosing a direction. With every action, you're choosing an ultimate direction. And I think it's helpful to think about future, you know, if your name's Bill or Steve, or Sally. Who do you want future Sally to be? Who do you want to be 10 years from now? What does that person look like? How do they think? How are they living? What kind of influence are they having for the kingdom? And make the decisions that lead you in a direction, a direction being the holiness of God, the righteousness of Christ, you know, when you learn a new language, it takes time. When you learn a new skill like snowboarding, it takes time, and you have to develop it. And so there has to be an active putting off of the old life and putting on the new life. Later in his life, John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, wrote this. He said, I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be. But by the grace of God, I am not what I was. And I appreciate that. And we grow in our obedience to Christ. In John chapter 14, verse 15, Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commands. Haven't you ever had this moment, those of you that have been Christians a while, where you know, something used to be a real struggle and now you're like, it's switched. 
and your desires have changed and your heart is aligned with what God wants. And so think about that future you. Who do you want to be? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, Saul, who became Paul, writes this, and he is a walking example of someone who radically changed. I think he was arrogant and difficult and a challenging person, and yet Paul became humble. You see, Saul was this difficult person, but Paul literally means little. He became humble. And it says, he writes in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. And so the big idea this morning is grab the new life that Christ offers. Grab the new life that Christ offers. You can experience real change in your life. Let's pray. Dear God, make each of us here trophies of your transformation. We desire to be all that you want us to be, that our character looks like the character of Jesus Christ. Lord, we invite the Holy Spirit to do his work in us, to root out those areas of rebellion, those areas of darkness. Lord, lead us into victory. Move us forward. We want to flourish and thrive. We want to be ambassadors for your kingdom. Lord, help us to be trophies of your transformation. This is our heart's cry. In the name of Jesus, amen.